This is the Talk Editions podcast, episode five. Suddenly, I saw this totality of the system that we are living on. If I had the answer, <laughs> it would be easy. It would be boring. Yeah. I'm very fascinated with baboons right now. <laughs> It's with every dimensions that we can find a possible moment of maybe pushing us to to step back and think and reflect critically about the social political framework that we are living on. I'm Marina Kifferstein, the violinist of Talk, and I'm Charlotte Mundy, vocalist of Talk. And I am Ashkan Bezladi. I'm a composer based in Chicago right now. Today on our show, we're speaking with composer Ashkan Bezadi about his piece Azhushmi from our album Ur. Ashkan is an Iranian-Canadian composer currently residing in Chicago, where he's doing a postdoc in composition at the University of Chicago Center for Contemporary Composition. He's a graduate of McGill, Tehran University, and Columbia and holds degrees in music composition, music theory, and architecture. Ashkan's music structurally conveys a miniaturist lyrical craft by demonstrating great attention to details, but ultimately it aims to invoke the collective memory of folklore music through the use of illusion and pastiche. The question of genre identity and genre blurring, and in particular the relationship between modern lyric and contemporary music, is at the core of his aesthetic and artistic research. In Azhushmi for violin and soprano, the musical dimension of the text, an erotic post-language Persian modern poem, expands in the texture of the music to create an elaborated heterophonic relationship between the voice and violin. Is that an okay bio? This is, uh, yeah. I pulled I it mostly so. from your bio. Yeah, I think so. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> What does post-language yeah. mean? Post-language, it's, um, it's a movement in poetry, which uh, the musical dimension of the text, for example, is the focus of the lyrics rather than like the content. Or, uh, like, okay. uh, so in Ashushmi, the repetition of certain fragments, they form like this musicality right. that becomes more or to some degree as prominent as the meaning or as the images that it creates. Is that um, like, I've heard that there are translators now that are making translations of poems where instead of using like the meaning of, say, an ancient Greek text, they just find the English words that are closest in sound mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. put those together. So they create English sentences that sound like the Greek sentences, but actually mean something very different. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, this whole... Uh, problem of translation that you mentioned it's uh, it's a huge part of um, a sort of modernist movement in modern Persian lyric poetry a lot of the transformation came from um, a sort of a translation process there was a very important figure in uh, Persian modern lyric poetry Ahmad Shamlu who translated poems like Lorca for example mm -hmm. when you read the poetry he's not just trying to convey the lyricism but also he's thinking about the musicality also so with his mm. very immense knowledge in ancient uh, Persian he goes back in time and revives certain words mm. that they are very close into not just the lyricism but also the musicality of the text 
uh, that could fit with the musicality of Lorca, for example. So it's a very um, kind of formal translation also. It's not just the meaning or the imagery, mm-hmm. uh, which in some sense continues to branch out in Persian modern lyrics uh, into a whole uh, this kind of post-language medium that musicality is as if as important as the, the imagery or the feeling or the, the lyricism of the text itself. Cool. Well, that makes a lot of sense with yeah. your yeah. with Asushmi. Yeah, it is yeah. so in Asushmi is basically this musical aspect that I kind of expanded. It's mm-hmm. kind of following this musicality and like, taking f- some fragments of this musical aspect of the text itself and kind of exploding that uh, into the space of the voice and violin and kind of discovering this musical aspect of the lyric itself which I think is very much contains this erotic passionate side of the text itself Mm -hmm. Um, yeah did you feel that voice and violin was I mean was that the pairing that you wanted for the piece or were there outside reasons why it was a voice and violin piece sort of the idea of the piece uh, kind of proposed to me like in a way it it happened at the end of my undergrad degree at McGill that a friend of mine said uh, we have a friend that was looking for a piece for violin and soprano uh, I initially accepted to write the piece but then I couldn't write the piece at that moment I started to think about okay what is the text suitable for that project and this text by Reza Barani as Hushmi came to my mind because it has this very intimate uh, relationship of two people it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's about lover and beloved and uh, they have this kind of physical embodied interaction with each other the expression of love is very much as an erotic uh, kind of expression. It's a moment of making love to e- to each other. So these two instruments, it was very much part of the idea of the piece itself and why I chose the text in first place for that specific project. So yeah, it's kind of, it's a go back and forth between that idea of writing a piece for soprano and violin okay, I need a text, what text could suit that instrumentation. And the idea that came to my mind uh, for that ensemble was this very intimate relationship between the two instruments that kind of convey the text. So it's a back and forth sort of relationship between the two. When you're talking about the two voices or the voice and the violin, do you imagine in the piece that they are the two lovers or that together they're forming some kind of hybrid? Because a lot of the mm-hmm. time the textures of the piece are extremely blended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's kind of, it's not one way around. It's mm-hmm. not one way that I perceive them. There are, of course, like two instruments that they have a very intricate relationship with each other. Well, at the same time, there is text also that has this musical aspect, uh, that has this uh, lyrical aspects, and they are also kind of expanding the dimension, the musical dimension of the text. Uh, so there is a sort of a, a kind of let's say a dialectical relationship between mm. text instruments, 
the imagery of the text, the lyricism of the text, and also the physical or the musical aspect of the text itself that constantly is kind of going back back and forth in the relationship of the two instruments to the music, uh, to the text, and with each other, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes they break away into t- some sort of like different characters, and sometimes they are just one one instrument basically they're one body of sound or one body of identity basically in that sense that they are conveying the musical aspect of the text itself so when i'm saying that okay um the piece is kind of expansion of uh, the musical aspect it's not just one-on-one relationship between uh, the instruments and the text but there is a whole dialectical dynamic inside inside that relationship that is going on that's super interesting Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's nice to have that extra layer of oneness and two-ness (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I feel like this is uh, a sort of uh, it's constant thing that i'm going back like for example with the um, other piece that i the big piece that Maybe I Maybe you could speak a little bit about that for yeah, people who don't know. Um, I recently wrote a piece for a uh, talk, uh, a long song cycle, a 45-minute song cycle on uh, collections of lyrical poems by Federico Garcia Loca. And then in that piece, again, I'm discovering this relationship to the texts, how I can, how music can, can get close to this musical aspect, this lyrical aspect of the text and how how he, it can do that by thinking itself as a as a poetry itself. It seems very vague, it seems very nonsensical in a way. But by just thinking about okay, how I can be how I can compose something that is it, that is a poem itself. It's an attempt to get close to this very essence of the text itself, uh, I'm not claiming that I'm I reach the essence. It's just within that attempt, maybe some expressive dimension of the text itself could be revived in a way. So this dialectical relationship is constantly is part of the music, especially when I'm composing for texts. How I can get close to this essence of the text with music thinking itself as lyric poetry itself. Do you think, has music always been linked in your mind to poetry? Or can you remember a point in your past Mm. where you started to link them as closely as you do now? Mm. I think certainly it it has links to poetry. For example, I don't think I would be a composer without the translation of Lorca by Shomlu. Uh, oh, that whole That whole influence that those translations had on my urge for composing. I, I, I think it's always there. We are a generation that we kind of grew up with a tape that Shomlu himself reciting Lorca's poetry, translation of Lorca. And uh, I remember like uh, in my university when a lot of my classmates they were working on the projects they were listening to Shamlu while they were working on their their architectural at, pers- at, oh, at, uh, at architecture school, school at mm. University of Tehran it's kind of it's something that I think without that it's uh, I didn't have the same urge for uh, for creation for example so it's not that okay poetry is uh, what I'm trying to I mean it's uh, 
it's um, there is this claims that Iranians are all like uh, poets. It's uh, I think it's, my claim is not that. It's that we are kind of a generation that's a certain transformation in uh, Persian lyric poetry was kind of popularized and kind of um, it was an attempt to bring that into domain of public by the tapes that Shamdu created, for example. And without that, probably I wouldn't be a composer to have the same urge and so on. So in a way, the project Love, Crystal and Stone is kind of giving back an awe that I felt uh, to those translations, yeah. in a way. Um, I love that image of architecture students sitting, working on their projects, listening to poetry. Yeah, <laughs> It makes a lot of sense thinking about you and your music. You know, we've been talking about your influences for a little while now, mm -hmm. and it's it's poetry and it's architecture, and it's not like music. You know, no, it's not other certainly. music. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but are there any other composers or uh, musicians that really you feel have influenced you? Um, well, yes, definitely. I mean, if I go back before knowing these translations of Lorca. It would be Bach that kind of, when I was, I don't know, seven, eight years old, I found this tape of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach in a collection of tapes from a family. Um, and I listened and I was in shock and kind of wanted to create something. And I just started to play piano when I was seven years old. I, I felt that I want to create something that sounds like that Bach music. Uh, so Bach certainly is is very important figure. It's kind of I, still I kind of go back uh, to Bach certainly. Then there are other composers that I kind of reacted to similarly as I grew up. At certain point, it was Bartok that when I listened to Bartok, I was like in shock. Then it was Webern that I was like, wow, this is I want to compose like Webern. Later on, it was Ligeti, of course, that then I was like, oh, he stole all my ideas. I wanted <laughs> to compose his pieces, and he already <laughs> composed them. And then later on, more and more other composers, like Beat Fuhrer or uh, um, Shorino, to some extent. Um, but uh, it's, it's a sort of like a constellation. Now it's uh, when I go back and thinking about all these influences, it's it's the constellation of forces, and of course, I mean, uh, ethnic music is is such a huge uh, force now. Uh, especially recently, I uh, constantly think about this impossibility of creating uh, a memory of uh, ethnic music uh, in my music. Can you be a little more specific with ethnic music? Like, what what in particular? kind of music are you talking about? Um, yeah, uh, for example, the ethnic music of uh, Middle East is very important. Uh, Yemeni's uh, ethnic music, uh, Western Iranian music is very important. Northeastern Iranian is very important. Uh, kind of Sub-Saharan African uh, recently Northwest Afghani music is very important. There is a sense of a, a sort of a musical quality, a musical quality that is that is nested in the in that collective music, that so 
social aspect of that music that is very important for me a music that is created by people and kind of is part of the culture is integrated into the social life to the degree that exists now I mean of course I'm not celebrating uh, that that music it's very much a part of like uh, um, that's the social music and so on but there is a, a memory of something there's a memory of the collective creation rather than mm. an individual collect, uh, creation in in those music and in any um, ethnic music b- basically that is very much um, uh, an important aspect of what I'm trying uh, to think of when I'm composing um, right because contemporary music can often feel like it's often its own little silo it is but I mean uh, it's still like I'm I am very much in the domain of contemporary music I mean yeah um, I'm very much trying within that uh, sort of thinking about that collective music trying to um, critically think about the domain of contemporary music in some sense critically means uh, not criticizing and saying what is bad or bad, but being engaged with it uh, in a way. Mm-hmm. Being enga- engaged in what are the other possibilities inside this domain, inside this medium that I'm composing. Uh, so in in that sense, it's again, it may be in a way it's like composing for lyric poetry, how contemporary music can try to close itself to that music in a sense that other medium and that other genre Mm -hmm. within the medium that is the medium of the creation itself Uh, so in a way I see it the same way that I work with lyric poetry how the the music can get close to lyric poetry how how music can get close to that memory of the collective music in a way is it important to you as a composer to create music that is I hate to use the word accessible Mm -hmm. because I feel like that's a loaded kind of trendy word that Mm -hmm. people use when they talk about new music but who who are you writing for Mm -hmm. um this is a very difficult question of course um but I have some answers I feel I I don't think about accessibility at all. Um, I don't think about whether my piece should be accessible or not at all. Because, I mean, we don't have a one audience. If, I, if we think about one audience, then we are kind of uh, creating a totality of something. We are kind of in the position of superiority or we are... Uh, and that's my critique for composers that they claim that we are I'm composing an accessible music for an audience then who you are to decide I mean uh, there is not one audience there is for every single person there is a sort of a subjective reaction to uh, to the music so composing something that is accessible is not certainly part of my musical creation but I constantly when I'm composing I imagine myself inside the audience when I'm listening to my own piece while I'm composing it. I imagine myself as an audience listening to that piece in certain venue. Usually I have access to know that what is the venue that I'm composing for and that's very important because that comes to my imagination of how I'm experiencing my piece. 
So in a sense, I'm constantly going back and forth between creating something and being in that position that I'm listening, not just listening, but I also seeing the performance itself. So also this physical aspect of performance of that piece is also is very much part of it. Whether it is accessible or not, it's not something that I think about it in the sense that, okay, the piece should work to be accepted. But certainly I feel within my own process of judgment, I, I, I critique the piece in that sense. So I certainly I notice that, okay, at some point maybe I need to elevate my own taste also or my own uh, sets of critical judgments and, uh, because uh, you're certainly going to be in that position that you're watching your piece and you're experiencing your piece while composing it. So again, it's uh, sort of going back and forth while you don't think about it, but also you are in that position experiencing it. Mm. Um, I don't know if it makes sense at all. Totally. <laughs> I mean, we talk about people who are writing contemporary classical music that utilizes like strong elements of pop idioms or whatever um, tonality. We talk about some of those composers as getting comfortable in that but I think the same thing can happen to people on the other extreme of like extremely academic or you know complex music I think people can get very comfortable in that space as well Mm -hmm. I'm 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 reading uh, Aging of New Music by Adorno right now I was in my way to hear (laughs) and he's actually talking about that of how um, back then he wrote it in 1955 and he's kind of criticizing the contemporary music of his time uh Boulez and uh kind of uh, composers of that period of how they are they don't have the same impulse of uh of creation of um, like this anxiety that should be in creating something that is risky are too comfortable with the serial techniques I mean we all think that he's pro Schoenberg and he, at some point he starts like uh, criticizing Schoenberg himself with his conservatism of how at some point he's just too comfortable with his musical creation he's not he doesn't have the same force of his early earlier period at mm-hmm. the time that he was searching and he was kind of finding this core that it's out of place but it has so much meaning in it it's so much expressivity and so on so i think the danger is 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 both sides if you're just too comfortable uh, and i think like again lachemann is, is a great example great example like he noticed that what he's done is kind of as part of established contemporary music language and uh he kind of comes back with this sarcastic piece in a way that's showing okay you need to reevaluate like the musical material it doesn't have it shouldn't it shouldn't be established it shouldn't be uh what you are comfortable to create what should should be like formalized in a way as soon as it is then you need to move away you need you should not compose in a way that it's just part of the language and i'm using it and i'm just generate piece after the piece and after the piece and I think it's the same the same thing. Um, if we are in a way that, of course, like the age is very much is disappeared in so many other ways. But if you don't think about it, then 
the danger is to just be comfortable with what you do and what you create. There's no meaning whatsoever to what we do. It's just another object, and a thing among, among other things. So do you feel that discomfort is an integral force when you're, you know, in order to create something of value, you must be uncomfortable? Um, I, I feel, I feel so, or I hope so. I hope so. Um, at certain points, in last, in a way, in last last year maybe, I felt too comfortable with what I'm doing. I mean, there were certain things, certain techniques, that I knew it works. If I, there are certain things that I do, and it works, and I just can generate music after music and after music. It's it's such a harsh moment if when you feel that because then the whole meaning of composition is deprived of the meaning it's just it's as if dying because then you feel what is the point of what I'm doing at this point like, well what is what is the point of what you're doing in, um, on a good day yeah <laughs> um what are, what is the point um Is its pointlessness. <laughs> it's uh, creating something that um, it might not have any point. And maybe it's one of the objects in this network of objects that all of, all of us, every single object has, should have function and works within the system in a way. If that piece for certain moment a piece of music a certain moment can create that true purposelessness true flaw in the system then that's uh, the, the the moment of creation or moment of composition that's the point of composition uh, it's very abstract I mm. know uh, and I don't have like a certain point that okay I'm uh, what I'm doing is I'm not claiming that I'm what I'm doing is doing that. I'm saying that if you want to criticize my piece, that it doesn't have that. That's the point that should be criticized. It's not about the aesthetic, whether it works or not. If it doesn't create that moment of reflection, then it doesn't do anything. If a piece of music doesn't do that. The moment of reflection is not with political uh, statements or absolute newness. Of course, that's a very important part of it, but it's a constellation things, a constellation of reflection on the, on the tradition, on the contemporary music frameworks that we are working, on reviving what we left out within this trend of history that we are at this moment. It's with every dimensions that we can find a possible moment of maybe pushing us to, to a step back and think and reflect critically about the social, political framework that we are living on. But isn't, uh, when, I, when you first started talking about <laughs> how music should be pointless, I felt 
really attracted to that idea. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite moments as a performer and as a listener are when you are sort of floating in this other dimension and it's not really logical or not really something that can be fully explained. Mm -hmm. But that seems to me to be beyond like politics. I, um, I, but it is know, also it is also a political act to make something that doesn't have a function at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Um, so I, pointlessness. I don't. I don't. I didn't mean as a sort of um, art for it, art or kind of like um, something that zoom us out of the reality that we live on. Um, uh, pointlessness means that within this system that everything should have a function. There is this thing that like the capitalist system. Yeah, it's the well, basically the system that we live on. It's kind of uh, it's a system that is created by capitalist system, mm-hmm. and everything has a function. Everything, even contemporary music, has a function. It's a uh, part of the culture industry. If it doesn't do what it's truthfully should do, um, we are just creating something, and we are part of this concert series that should happen, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. If it we doesn't, we apply for grants and we have to say very specifically what the piece will be and how we'll you know, know if we were successful. Yeah, I mean, in a way, part of it is part of the reality. There is no other way around it. I mean, I'm not saying that we should be outside of this reality. Of course, grants is part of the whole process. Yeah. Of, yeah. You need to play the game if you if you want to have the luxury of the space to create the art that you're. Yeah, I mean, certain things. I mean, they are part of the reality. I mean. You need to have an instrument. You have to have certain techniques. You have to have certain, like all of this is part of the reality of the creation. If if you are a poet, you need a paper and pen. Where it is coming from? I mean, that's the most, the least that you need, and so on. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not kind of like um, a spiritual like, or we need to move out of the system in a way to be like truthful to the composition or to the art and human and so on and so forth. It's within the system, but understanding that, okay, within the system, a piece of music should create that reflective mode or, mm-hmm. and, but reflective mode doesn't need to be a, um, a sort of a rational uh, reflection with language. It can be a bodily, it can be a sensual reflection also. Mm-hmm. It can, it's, it's something that brings us to be a truthfully to be a human being, truthfully to be compassionate about another human being, maybe to create a moment of empathy for us, for other things around us that we are, we are supposed to share this space that we are not sharing at all. Uh, with either within the boundaries of the human existence itself, but also with the nature itself. Um, it's it's just this moment of empathy that the piece of music that should should create. Yeah. How it's doing that? Well, if I if I had the answer, <laughs> it would be boring. It would be You'd easy. probably do something it would else. Be boring. <laughs> yeah. I, of course, it's just it's just this. It's something in the background of. Yeah. Maybe every morning waking up and sitting under your table and work. Otherwise, there is no meaning. There is nothing. There is just a thing among other things. It's just is creating a door for a house is more meaningful than composing a piece of music. Mm-hmm. In that sense, if it lose that 
that meaning or truthfulness in a way. Would you say that you experience those moments of reflection often in your own life? Or what kinds mm -hmm. of pieces of art or experiences tend to bring up that feeling of reflection? Oh, certainly. I was, um, I was on a flight yesterday and um, the flight was coming from uh, on the Hudson River and I could see downtown New York. I actually woke up uh, from this nap into seeing Times Square. Yeah. Then it come up and it I saw uh, Central Park. Then it come up to the input and so on. It, it su suddenly I saw this totality of this system that we are living on that I never felt before. Um, it was very, very special, like how a sort of a network of events that is taking place right now in the world, they're all connected for the sake of the system itself. Mm. Um, I think like it's coming from the fact that I'm reading certain books at this moment, but it's also seeing Manhattan at that moment brought this sort of idea, this intuitive understanding, I feel, of this network of events, uh, what happens in India and Iran, in Middle East, to the nor North Africa, to Europe, to England, to US, everything is it's just suddenly like connected. Yeah. Certain piece of pieces of music, of course, not just new music, but certain pieces like, I don't know, Bach, uh, Matthew, uh, uh, Passion, it's, it create that sensitivity, I feel, mm -hmm. for this moment of reflection, I think. And a piece of music should create that sensitivity for us to bring us to that sort of moment of reflection. Um, I hope my music would do that. I'm not sure if I'm, it's doing that. I'm not sure, but it's I'm trying. It's not just up to you, too. It's about the performers, like, connecting yeah. with your music. Absolutely. It's about yeah. the audience. About the audience, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's about yes. I mean, it's not just music. It's of course like understanding music. It's also needs a whole education. It it needs whole repetition of uh, uh, listening, criti critical listening, reflective listening. It's not just the music itself that can do that, or a piece of art can do that, but it's also it's a whole reflection of uh, or constellation of things that should bring that experience or that reflection. I'm not claiming that a piece of music by itself brings enlightenment to the whole world. Or that would be great right. if it could, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or would that be too easy? I don't know. So what, what were the actual circumstances of the premiere of Azhushmi? Because it wasn't Marina and I. It were these yeah. other performers. <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, I was in Fontainebleau New Music in 2013 and there I uh, I was supposed to choose what combination of a string instruments and voice possibility of a voice solo voice I can write for and having this uh, piece in mind I was sure that I'm going to write as with me because that was the best situation to write that so within a very peri short period of time that was one month basically 3 weeks uh, I wrote the piece. Uh, the first performance was by uh, Colin Infant and Rachel Kobliakov. Oh, I know yeah, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that she premiered this piece. <laughs> she premiered the piece, and I very much, very closely work with them, uh, with both Colin and, cool. and Rachel. 
it, and I believe it or not, I conducted the first performance mm. because we had to prepare the piece within two days, basically. And uh, it can be difficult to put together. The, uh, so I was just standing for the first performance. I'm just standing there and I'm moving my hands like randomly most of the time. <laughs> and they are performing the piece. <laughs> After that, it just start to be uh, kind of a very popular piece. Uh, yeah. um, it got performed so many times. I don't know how many times. That's and, amazing. And I mean, that's at some point, happens, right? you guys own own the piece. Like I can't imagine as if I compose a piece for uh, Charlotte and Marina, uh, as if this is your piece. I can't imagine that the piece has any other life without you. Uh, it's heart. very strange thing at the same time because I didn't initially compose, which is very important aspect of my composition. Like. I really need to feel like very personally connected with but my But we did work on it a lot together. And over it, yeah. a number of years really. I mean we we've had it in our repertoire. I don't remember when we first did it, but it was years ago. Um yeah, we performed so it so many times. Maybe the piece has shaped us as much as it was <laughs> shaped for us, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, in a way. Yeah. That's the ni- that's one of the nice <laughs> things about continuous relationships with composers is it feels like we can affect one another kind of yeah going back to that idea of like what part of my music is critical and the similarity of the aesthetics I think we kind of grew up with each other in in a way since 2000 uh, 2014 yeah 13 14 14, we kind of we start to be very in like close collaboration right and certainly the work that we work together it's shaped both our aesthetics like aesthetics of talk and aesthetics of my music mm-hmm. in a way the pieces that you perform by other composers is very much affected my music in a way because of course when i'm composing for you i have those pieces in mind i have your characters in mind i have your uh, the characteristic of your performance in mind and so on mm-hmm. so of course it's again it's a dialectical like relationship between composer and performer especially in these cases that we work so close to each other uh, mm. with each other it's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> um it might be a good time to ask oh, yeah. you a few questions about yourself sure <laughs> so what do you do in your time off Ashkan? Ah, uh, beside wasting my time on YouTube watching, uh, I know, animals these days. <laughs> uh, which kind of animals are you watching? I'm very fascinated with baboons right now. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It's, uh, it's very, very, very intricate, their social networks. I don't know how mm-hmm. much is it. It's kind of humanized within the documentaries that we are watching. I don't know, but it's very certainly it's very strange and very interesting. Huh. Um, beside that, I read, I play tennis sometimes if I find a partner to play with. <laughs> uh, what Does else? Does Saha ever play tennis with you? No, Saha is not sportive at all. No. <laughs> Oh yeah, my brother plays with me, and uh, yeah, whenever I'm in Toronto, for example, I play tennis. I love cooking. 
and I drink more when I don't compose. <laughs> so that's another part of it. Uh, cooking and drinking is also <laughs> very important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's coming up for you, Ashkan? Um, right now I'm working on um, a big piece for Grossman Ensemble, which is part of my postdoc at uh, Contemporary Center for Composition at University of Chicago. Uh, the piece is performed in March 13th in Chicago, of course. The other big piece that is coming after that is uh, a chamber clarinet concerto for Orknall Ensemble that is happening either next year or the year after that. Then um, the other big piece that I'm planning to start working on is this a continuation maybe of Ashushmi in a way, mm-hmm. uh, a series of uh, pieces for voice and violin on uh, Persian modern love poem. Super so, exciting! Yeah, Just you better prepare yourself. <laughs> I am ready. <laughs> Yeah, these are the big projects. And of course, at some point, Love, Crystal, and Stone is going to be expanded. And we're (laughs) hopefully going to record it sometime as well. This is in the plans. (laughs) That's one of the plans. Yeah, this is one of the plans. (laughs) Are you familiar with the game Would You Rather? Uh, I can't guess (laughs) what the game game is. What is the game? (laughs) Are there two choices? We give you two options. Okay, and I choose one instantly without thinking. And why. You have to tell us the the answer and why. Okay. But do try and make an instant choice, you know, from your gut. Okay. Okay. Would you rather experience the edge of the Earth's atmosphere or the bottom of the ocean? Edge of atmosphere, certainly. Why? Well, uh, it's incredible to just see the Earth from that position and see the outer space. Yeah. Yeah. Are um, you imagining that you would just be magically floating there, or are you imagining yourself in like a satellite kind of thing? Uh, I I imagine as part of being part of a machine, but not a satellite, but something like. Uh, I think I have this image. I don't know if it was X File, the series <laughs> X File or not. <laughs> there is one of the nightmares that I imagine is that there is this um, astronomer that was disconnected from the the satellite and he just flowed away into oh, outer yeah. space, <laughs> and he had his oxygen with him for couple of hours into nothingness before he probably die and I think that's the image that I had <laughs> also though that I feel like that's not the worst way to go because you get to experience and I with oxygen <sighs> deprivation if it's slowly don't you kind of just slowly pass out hey, like I don't think it's know. the same kind of feeling painful. of suffocation as if it's just cut off all at once but I'm not sure yeah you probably mm. just faint Probably just pass out because of lack of, like, I think you get a little loopy. There was an episode of Battlestar Galactica where Hmm. the oxygen was cut off to their room Mm. and they started getting really loopy. Mm. And that seems like science to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Battlestar Galactica, I'm sure they have scientists on staff, (laughs) fact-checking everything. (laughs) Would you rather live in like a gigantic oversized mansion where you can't even keep track of how much space you have mm-hmm. or how many rooms you have mm-hmm. or like a tiny house tiny house certainly 
Yeah. 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 Everything about that tiny house is 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 best. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like why would you need that space? I mean, why someone needs that space? I don't understand why. I mean, I I I certainly don't understand why people want to live in mansion. Like, what? Why? Like, you need all those space for yourself. I just don't get it. There's something intuitive about like living in a tiny space that you just crawl in and work and the enjoyment is just so great. Yeah. <laughs> like a little animal in its hole. Like Maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your cave. Let's yeah, say. your cave, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah my saw saw constantly said tries to get me out of cave, like Cave is not answer. Just get out. <laughs> you can't just crawl in into your space and just work. It's coming into you and so on. Yeah, but that's whole different mm. <laughs> discussion. Would you rather eat another human or be eaten by another human? Alive or this is like a Donner <laughs> Party situation where, like, you know, the Donner Party, like, they you you're gonna oh die of God. starvation or they are. <laughs> You know, I'd certainly rather to just die and someone just if they want to eat me, that's <laughs> much. But if not being eaten alive, I mean, that no, is they that. could kill you first, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, I can't do that. That's fine. To save the people <laughs> around you. No, I don't care, but it's just like. <laughs> you just don't want to eat them. No, yeah. The worst I situation mean, would be like if you killed someone else and ate them and then still nobody saved you and like someone else in the party ate you and it that would feel really bad. So best to just be the first one. Yeah, to to just, yeah, yeah. I mean, why would you continue in that situation? I mean, I don't think yeah, I would want to live after after <laughs> that point. Like, killing somebody for food. Although if they died because of exhaustion or whatever, heat stroke or cold or whatever mm -hmm. the conditions were then I would probably eat them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, for example, if you're lost in the nature or something. Yeah. Okay. What if yeah. you were with, like, what if you had been on a plane that crashed and all the people you were with were, like, really bad people, though? I mean, it doesn't matter. I feel, um, I mean, in that point, even if they are the best people and they die, I guess if the urge of leaving is too much, it's, it's hard. it might be, like, so strong that you just do it, you know? Mm -hmm. But if it's a matter of my decision... That I would li rather to be died, like to be if they they want to eat me or whatever, it's fine. Right. If I'm dead, it's it's fine. I mean, who cares? <laughs> 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 but the whole like moral dilemma or like I don't know the whole disgusting process of like cutting someone to eat it to just survive. I don't know. I hope I don't go through that process. <laughs> but maybe if you are in that in that situation and the urge of leaving is so much you would do it I don't know maybe maybe yeah, it's hard to predict hard. how you would yeah. actually act <laughs> yeah. yeah it's probably I think good that, I think we have yeah. enough information yeah now. okay <laughs> 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 all right we can triangulate all the different points of data you've given us and make a picture okay from the constellation of the yeah. experience oh, yeah I guess it would be more than a triangle it would be a you know a weird shape, some kind I of guess. portrait yeah <laughs> <laughs> thanks for That's talking it. to us oh th thanks for having me uh thanks for i don't know for the whole all 
these years of like inspiration and working together and influencing on each other's aesthetics and thinking probably and yeah. uh Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I'm so glad you were in town and we could talk to you. Me in too. In person. Yeah. 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 Okay. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> this has been the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 5 with Ashkan Bazadi. For links to Ashkan's music and to other things we talked about in this episode, check out our show notes. Ashkan's piece, Azhushmi, is featured on Talk's recent album, Ur, which you can purchase at talkensemble.bandcamp.com. Stick around to listen to the piece in its entirety at the end of this episode. If you're enjoying the Talk Editions podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it so others can find us. Our next episode will feature an interview with composer Aaron Gee. This episode was recorded at Tiny Panther Studios, courtesy of Charles Muller. It was produced by Marina Kipperstein and Charlotte Mundy and edited by Marina Kipperstein. For more information about Talk, go to talkensemble.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.